Welcome to another episode of the Allocate Podcast, where we focus on bringing you key insights about the ever-evolving private markets. Allocate is a software company designed to help the private wealth sector more effectively invest in the private markets. This week, we're thrilled to be joined by John Abbott, a partner at Stepstone Group. Stepstone currently manages $143 billion across multiple strategies. Their clients include some of the world's largest pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, endowments and foundations. John focuses on venture capital and growth equity investments on Stepstone's private equity team, including both primary and secondary investments. In this episode, we focus our conversation on venture secondaries, going back to the history, the current landscape, and how venture secondaries work in practice. With the amount of macro change we've seen over the last two years, secondaries have been a popular area for investors, and it was really fun going deeper into this topic with John. We hope you'll really enjoy this conversation, and without further ado, let's get right into the episode. Samir Kaji is the CEO and co-founder of Allocate. Allocate and Venture Unlocked are independent of each other. Any statements or references made by Allocate or its guests regarding third parties, investments or securities are solely their views and opinions and are not intended as investment advice or an endorsement of such parties or securities by Allocate or its guests. Allocate or its clients may maintain relationships with or investment positions in guests, third parties, or securities mentioned in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. John, it's good seeing you. Thanks for joining us today for the Allocate podcast. Yeah, great to see you too, Samir. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk about a subject that everybody's thinking about, which is secondaries, of course, during this economic dislocation. But maybe just to set a base level understanding, maybe tell us a little bit about the secondary market, your work in it, and then how it's evolved over time. Our team at Stepstone in the Venture Growth Division focus on venture secondaries. Clearly, you know, secondaries more broadly encompass everything from private equity, secondaries, real estate. Uh, we are venture specialists. So the venture secondary market has actually been around for for a long time. You know, when we when we started out our, our organization in the early 2000s, we actually were doing some venture secondaries, but it, it was very niche at that point. In many ways, you can't you kind of think about, you know, the different aspects of venture secondaries. On the limited partner side, you know, most LP secondaries were being done towards the very end of life where funds kept getting extended after that 12-year period. There's typically three one-year extensions and LPs that were kind of just tired and felt like their their fund investments were, it was Hotel California, were, were doing tail end uh, LP secondaries. So that was, that was kind of what was happening in the early 2000s, kind of leading up to the GFC it was a smaller niche market, but there had been some overhang of funds that just were kind of poor performers that were kind of hanging out there that people people wanted to, to unwind. On the direct secondary side, which was is employees or former employees selling, that actually was kind of persona non grata. It was interesting. If you were a CEO and you went to your board and said, I want to take some chips off the table in the early 2000s. The board said, what do you know that I don't know? Because if you're selling and I'm not selling, like something's up. So that was like definitely not something you saw a lot. You occasionally saw it if there was like a very unique situation. So with all of that, like venture secondaries really was a tiny, tiny market that started to expand around the GFC, obviously with the dislocation there. But that was sort of like our beginning journey into it. And then during the GFC, 
one of the things you started to see there was clearly the denominator effect is really the was the biggest driver of that that next set of maturation in the the venture secondary market where the public markets just dropped off a cliff the venture allocation which still were pretty small i mean if we remember the venture industry like pre gfc was probably like 25 to 30 billion so really small industry relative to now 2021 it was over 300 billion it was close to 350 billion invested so and that was down like that 25 to 30 was down from the 199 in 2000 so definitely smaller so a lot of that was denominator factor and people that were kind of di- distressed where they just were way over allocated had to dump part of their portfolio and they were largely dumping kind of their bottom quartile, bottom third of, of funds. It was just kind of like say la vie and sell them at deep discounts. But there wasn't actually a lot that got done during that period. It was the distressed stuff, the bottom performers, the stuff you kind of wanted to wipe your hands with, people that maybe were kind of giving up on the asset class. It, you know, it, it got a little life support in 06 and 07 and leading up to 08 and people were were kind of wiping their hands. So that started to like pique people's interest about it, but still like pretty small. And again, you, you've clearly seen a lot of growth sort of coming out of the GFC. I'd say in particular where you started to see the the main growth smear was in the direct secondary market, sort of in this most recent bull market where outcomes were A, getting pushed out longer, right? Where the average time to IPO was close to a decade. The I you know M and A maybe seven or eight years, the outcomes were getting bigger and bigger. Employees sort of woke up to the fact that like this doesn't have to be a cradle to grave type of situation. Whereas the LP world was this cradle to grave. It was like you were either in or you were at. And if you were going to sell, you're going to kind of sell at the very end where you know it's kind of like wipe my hands, no no fault fell. Like just I kind of need to clean up this. Whereas entrepreneurs kind of figured out or former employees, et cetera, said, hey, like, if I've got all my sweat equity in this. I want to take some chips off the table. And a lot of that kind of got tied into financing rounds where a financing round would happen and either part of the route or maybe six months, nine months, three months afterwards, there was a secondary. And because there was so much demand from these great companies, there was more capital demand than there was uh, supply and working capital. Secondary started getting weaved in there. And that really, during this last bull market, really created this rise in the secondary direct market. And it's funny, it's, it's like, it's super interesting is we're now, and we could pivot to like the current environment, we're now seeing this LP market kind of wake up. But LPs are kind of waking up to the same concept to say, hey, venture is this super long and can be super valuable road, but it doesn't have to be cradle to grave. And the entrepreneurs probably, you know, rightfully so, or we're ahead of the, but we're both ahead of the LPs and ahead of the GPs in sort of this thinking. The direct secondary side is still obviously alive and prevalent. They're not tied to financing rounds now. We could talk why they're not and, you know, the reasons. But now we're seeing the LP side of the world to pick up. And there's a variety of reasons why that is. Clearly, the public markets, again, are down. But I think there's a misconception where as soon as public markets come down, or heck, they're up this year in 2023, that somehow this sort of denominator effect is sort of the driving force in, in the secondary world. Let's talk a little bit about that. So you mentioned a couple of times the denominator effect, which for everyone listening is you're an LP in private funds, you have public 
equity positions, your public equities decrease in value, you have an allocation target to your privates, which haven't marked a market, and now you're over-allocated on the private and you need to either slow down your new investing, you hope the public markets do rebound so you organically fix that, or you have to sell. So let's take a look at what's happened over the last 18 months. You know, we came off this long bull market, which really precipitated with this crazy time in 19, 20, 21, where funds were getting bigger. People were having to re-up quicker because funds were coming to market quicker. And now 22 happens. They made all these allocations. There's no real liquidity window because the IPO window has shut. And you're not kind of stuck in a position of being well over allocated with your private bucket. What's really driven maybe some of the activity in the secondary market? And how have you seen the discounts during this time? This sort of cataclysmic thing that sort of happened or a variety of things that happened, which, you know, Samaria alluded to several of them, was really sort of this run up during the bull market where venture managers used to raise every two and a half to three to maybe three and a half years. And institutional allocators built models, whether they built it, their consultants built it, that said, by your third commitment to a venture fund, because again, let's do that math, three plus three plus three, you're at nine or 10 years. It takes nine or 10 years to get you know company to, to IPO or so. You started getting distributions from your first commitment. The problem was, and you, you, know, you, you poked at it, was fund managers start coming back every one and a half years. And so that model of three commitments where you could become self-funding, if you will, by your third commitment or during the third commitment from your earlier commitments was broken. I don't think people fully realized that or, or thought through it. We, we did have a good liquidity market going. Things were all up in the right. Markups were happening. And so allocators all of a sudden were committing quite rapidly. Those fund managers, in some cases, not only were coming back with one fund, they came back with their early fund, their growth fund, their you know expansion fund, they uh, subsector fund, a geography fund. So all of a sudden, you started blinking, and within like an eight to ten year period, you've made five to seven commitments to the same venture fund manager. By the way, during this bull market, those commitments did very well. So those five to seven commitments actually got marked up 2x, 3x, 4x, 1.5x. So your NEV for fund manager X just got really, really big. It's a good problem to have in some ways. It got really big because of the performance. But that self-funding model that you were trying to create was a fundamentally broken, where in reality, it might have been by your fifth or sixth commitment over that eight or 10 year period where you should have started seeing distributions. But unfortunately, that period you should have seen distributions was supposed to be 2022, was supposed to be 2023, was supposed to be 2024, and you got hit with this wall of liquidity. And so you've got this kind of structural problem on your hands that has less to do to your point, my point about the denominator effect of, but rather people allocating to a high-performing asset class, allocating more rapidly, duration of liquidity getting pushed out, a wall of e-liquidity happening, and now being stuck with large positions in managers you might like a lot, and in asset class you still believe in, you like the innovation economy. It's in many ways, if you look at it, one of the most exciting out there hands down is innovation that's happening here in the US and globally, 
but you just have huge NAVs. Part of the the why now is that something sort of got to give and that if you are going to continue to commit, and there's great reasons why you should continue to commit capital in these current and future vintages, your cash flow models are broken. And that taking some partial liquidity, not to give up your great relationship with X and give up your B-Trend real estate, but to actually just self-fund is actually a good thing and should be part of this asset class. It shouldn't be the cradle grave. You shouldn't have to wait 15 or 17 years. And, and that's part of what you're starting to see sort of this realization, this aha that's happening from LPs and GPs alike around the current situation out there in the marketplace. Yeah, we, we've seen obviously the activity pick up, but I think one thing that would be really helpful to talk about is going through the mechanics of how it works. So I am a limited partner, maybe I'm an institution, a big family office. I run into this wall of I've made a ton of commitments. There isn't a cash flow model because those managers that I've committed to have come back every two years. The capital was called really quickly during that period of time. And now the liquidity window is shut. And therefore, I'm faced with, I need cap calls that I need to continue to make. Maybe I still want to back these new managers as they come back. But now I'm stuck with illiquid nav. When somebody is actually looking to sell a position, what are the actual mechanics of how it works? Because it does seem it operates in this world of relative opacity and very difficult to understand how do I actually sell in a situation and how are these things priced? The interesting thing is there is naivety both on the GP side, because they're not used to having LP sell, and on the LP side as well. Because again, historically, a lot of it was just very tail end or fire sale. So this like, let's call it portfolio rebalancing, cash flow rebalancing, you know, strategic allocation of resources that you're, you know, looking to allocate within the asset class, it's sort of a different mindset. So it can come in a lot of different shapes and forms. So if you're an institutional LP in, in a fund that needs to sell, oftentimes coordinating with the general partner is is a is a good port of call. You know, they can ultimately direct you to potential buyers. They can direct you to various intermediaries that could help you in those. Those sales don't have to come in all or nothing. You can sell part of your portfolio. You can sell part of your interest in a fund. It, it isn't all, you know, sort of black and white. You might have interest in six or seven different funds. You can sell a portion of those, meaning a, a portion of all of them. You can sell three out of the six. You can sell two out of the six. And so there is ways to sort of customize and, and change that exposure where you might be willing to sell some of the older stuff and and want more of the younger stuff. There's a lot of different form factors uh, around that. I think leveraging inter- intermediaries or advisors around that is is can be a very positive thing to help understand like how to go about that and, and who to talk to. The general partner of, of the firm you might be selling to from can be helpful as well as I referenced. And in some cases, do need to sign off on the on that sale where they have sort of approval rights or the like. So working in sort of consultation with those various parties could be, could be advantageous. So those are, I would refer to that some years like one-off sales where you're considering selling the funds from one manager, a variety of funds where you're kind of doing that. And then there's there's more structured situations where again, maybe you're that GP at, at manager X and not only that one LP saying, hey, I, 
I'd like some distributions back and I could use a little VPI. They've got 10, 15 of their LPs saying the same thing. And they can actually help structure something for a wider group of LPs. And that could become in the form of a tender process where a hypothetically a buyer out there goes to a general partner and says, we're willing to buy LPs out at a 20% discount. And if you're an LP in that fund, you get an offer to sell 100% or 0% or anywhere in between of your interest at that discount. And so you can take partial liquidity, you can take no liquidity, you can take full liquidity. And those are called LP tender processes. And it's still early days. There's not a whole lot of these have been being done. It's more, you see more of this in private equity, but we believe you're going to see more of that in, in the future. And there's other structures out there as well, such as strip sales and continuing funds as well, which are other, which I'm happy to kind of double click on as well, that are other kind of structured situations. Now, discounts out there do vary. Um, and you sort of, you know, alluded to like, where are things trading right now? They're not all created equal, right? Especially in venture capital, because depends on how conservative or aggressive the managers have been on their uh, portfolio company marks. We've seen some managers mark their portfolios down over the last year, year and a half, as much as 40 to 60%. We've seen other managers more in the 10 to 20% range. So the deeper discounts they've written their portfolios down, the discount that a buyer would pay for might be thinner. But to the extent a, a, a GP is more aggressive in their holds, the discounts could be higher. If you look at data out there from a number of the big sort of intermediaries, these are you know the banks that help intermediate, the average discounts, according to like Jefferies, is about 30% in venture right now. For buyout, it's more like in the teens. So that's kind of gives you a parameter. I think you know, you're seeing stuff maybe as small as 15 to 20%. And you're seeing stuff as, as big as 50 to 70%. So it is a really wide spectrum. I don't think one should sort of focus purely on the discount. Again, a lot of it has to do with how the manager has marked their portfolio, the quality of the assets, you know, how well financed they are, and, and the duration it may take for those assets to, to reach liquidity. And if there's you know, remaining unfunded commitments that the secondary buyer is also picking up and essentially buying it. 1x, right, for these uh, uncalled capital. Can we maybe go into, because you're a very active buyer of limited partner interests as a firm, when you're looking at one of these, and you mentioned managers do hold things, which we, we do know inside the industry at different sort of price, could be the same company, but held at different marks across different funds, which makes it even more difficult to figure out like how to price these things manager by manager. But when you are looking at it, venture is very much the power law type of game. There might be two to three companies within a portfolio that you're buying that ultimately you're underwriting to. How do you think about underwriting to these portfolios when you have such a skew toward the top one, two, or three companies, and you're not only looking at the marks, but you're looking at the risk factor. Are these companies actually going to translate to DPI at some level or some level above what they're marked at right now. It, it's, a, it's a big difference, you know, in terms of like a mindset of, of how, you know, we think about venture secondaries versus I think a lot of people think about more traditional private equity secondaries where they're buying really big baskets of, of beta out there. You know, they're using leverage on their funds. They're doing things like deferrals and others. And, you know, they, they produce 
pretty consistent types of returns within the industry by by running sort of this pretty established playbook. It in venture secondary, to your point, d- to degenerate sort of the returns you want that would be tied to like what one would expect in venture capital, you really do have to go after portfolios that have a subset of value drivers that are not only A, a big portion of the NAV today within that fund or that portfolio, but B, upon success are actually going to drive the, the bulk of the returns in the future. So you really have to have like a prepared mind and really a tops-down view around what are the companies that you want to own and what are those exposures. And when you're under, underwriting that specific fund manager, you're not underwriting because you like the 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 basket of 20 or 30 managed companies, you like the manager, you're buying because you like these three assets or these two assets. And you're buying those companies, you think, at a very fair valuation. And if and when they're successful, you're going to get rewarded meaningfully. And so it takes a different skill set. You really do have to, your point, do that like specific direct investment like diligence. Obviously, not typically on just one company, but a handful and gain that conviction. And there can be fool's gold of just buying baskets at big discounts in venture because there is uh, operational risk, there's financing risk. You have to understand the you know the reserves. There's clearly going to be more loss rates in the future. And you know again, if you buy a lot of like mediocre companies in venture, mediocre, you don't get paid for. There are landmines where people are getting excited about just sticker prices and discounts, but the way you make money in venture secondaries is really our in our estimation based on quality and picking. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And and we've touched on a few things in terms of what are the main reasons people do sell in LP secondaries, right? It's not that cradle of the grave. You don't have to wait 15 years. There are going to be opportunities where it does make sense to sell at at a discount. And actually you can still do well because it still might be a multiple of what your cost value was. But where are you seeing, I guess some of the other drivers, we've had a lot of emerging managers to raise a, you know, the next fund. Oftentimes, they need to show liquidity. Are you seeing any direct secondaries really driven by the emerging managers who have these great assets but need to drive some level of liquidity back to the fund and their LPs to be able to raise the next? How much of that is a factor right now in the, uh, the secondary market, whether it's LP or whether it's direct? Let me just double click the one thing you said that, which I think is probably worth repeating. That's interesting. So one of the big differences in this secondary market relative to what happened in the GFC or what happened in 2001 or 2002 is people are able to sell at these discount levels that we're talking about, right? 25 to 50% and sell part of their stake and actually generate strong returns. And that did not happen during those periods. And that was part of the issue of actually getting bid-ass spreads to come together. So people can walk away and sell part of their portfolios here, lock in really strong or solid returns, produce liquidity, go have a high-five moment at the IC of their institution, and, and, and chalk up a win, and have that liquidity to go reinvest and go do great things, whether it's in venture or other asset classes, where in yesteryear, you were taking major losses, and those are tough to stomach for institutional investors. And so it is a unique time where you can have win-win-wins here because of just how high the performance in venture capital was. So I think that's just a really big like call out of like partially why this is different and partially why, you know, while this is a major opportunity, 
there's, I think, a lot of good reason why there'll continue to be opportunities to create sellers and buyers to have good experiences, especially when you're only selling part of it and you're letting that next portion ride for what could still be a very valuable journey in the future. The emerging manager piece is a really great question and uh, thing to sort of discuss, both in terms of what you're describing, which might be, Samir, a little bit more in like single companies, like some of their crown jewels where they might have wanted to hold for a very, very long time, but in, in, in exchange now said, hey, it might, may I want to sell some. And then the other piece with those is those groups may be some of the more likely to consider some of those structural things like tender offers or strip sales in the future. So emerging managers kind of taking a step back, and, and you might have as good a numbers or even better than me. I mean, there were close to 1,500 new managers that were created last decade. So a lot of new folks out there, right? And over the last decade, if you raise ma- funds, again, imagine that raising every two-year cycle, most of those fund managers don't have distributions. So they've raised three or four or five funds. Their LP may or may not be happy. Let's Let's pick the good ones. LPs are happy with the returns, but they don't have distributions to your point. And those emerging managers are coming back to market in the next one to three years. They're going to have their hands out to the LPs saying, I love you to re-up. And the LPs want some distribution. They want to. They want it to self-fund. I think you're going to see kind of two things. To your point, it's not happening yet. Some are exploring it. It's starting to happen. You see a little bit more on like the angel side or kind of the single personal investments into some of these, you know, unicorn, decacorn types of situations. But the micromanagers are starting to consider this. You're seeing a few out there do this in a handful of names. But I think in 2024, 2025, assuming we don't have that liquidity, and those people were in early. So I think, again, do not forget this. They can sell part of that stake in that company and and generate a bunch of distributions potentially. So I think you're going to see those those happen or those emerging managers take partial liquidity in some of their crown jewels. Now, part of the issue is the signaling, right? They don't want to be seen by the entrepreneurs sort of quitting on the company. But I think some of that signaling is clearly going away, I think, in in a positive direction. Um, Clearly, the entrepreneurs in many of those same situations took some chips off the table. So we think that is absolutely sort of an emerging area that you're going to see more within the the micro seed managers, emerging managers take some some partial liquidity off the table. The other way to go about it, again, is the structural stuff, where if they have, again, tremendous fund returns, they may have a 5x net fund, but they've only returned 0.2, 0.3 in DPI, you're going to see these things like tenders, which I described before, or maybe strip sales, where instead of going and selling that just a portion, a third, or half of that crown jewel company, you actually sell a strip of every company in your portfolio. Or in some cases, they could be structured as a subset. But let's just make it easy and say a strip of all the companies. So you can go out of your GP and say, I want to, let's just use that math. You want to bridge the gap between 0.2x and you want to get all your clients to 1x DPI. So they gave you a dollar, you want to give them the dollar back. You can go out and work with a potential buyer to structure a deal like that. Again, it'll have a discount. And that buyer will essentially buy a percentage of every company out there in the portfolio at a discount. And you will get a distribution back that will bridge your DPI from 0.2 to 1x. Now, you as an LP and the GP prospectively are giving up some of the upside in the future. 
but you're getting partial liquidity. You're locking in gains. The GP is locking in, in some cases, prospectively, even some carry, which can create a, a win for those partners who maybe haven't gotten a taste of carry in their entire career. So I think you're going to see more of those. Now, structurally, they are different than tenders, where in many cases, all are different. You can you can do those with like limited partner advisory board approvals uh, versus you know widespread tender processes uh, in terms of how they're communicated to LPs. So definitely nuances out there, but I think that emerging manager cohort, because not all of those will persist and be sustainable firms going forward, are really going to have to re-examine because venture firms are companies that you know those emerging managers were startup companies over the last decade. They're going to have to think about how they continue to persist as ongoing operations. And in order to meet their clients where they are, which their clients are LBs, they're going to have to give them some money back in order to, in many cases, get their re-ups and and persist in in the future. And so I think it's going to be a really interesting time out there, both established and emerging managers, just, again, thinking strategically uh, around these these questions that you're bringing up, Samir. Yeah, what what you're actually describing is various ways to produce some level of liquidity back to the fund, back to the LPs when, in fact, we're in this period right now where a lot of capital went in, the IPO, the acquisition market, of course, has slowed down over the last 18 months. The one thing I want to double click back on is when an emerging manager, for example, has a crown jewel company, maybe it's year six, seven, eight, that company they were hoping would have some kind of public or some kind of acquisition by now, drive you know liquidity back to the to the fund, back to the LPs, and it's not happening because of the current macro. Historically, I've seen that where money has been taken off the table by some of these EMs, and I agree with you. I think signal, signaling risk is probably overblown. In fact, the entrepreneur sometimes may think that it's better to recap slightly by getting investors that could help the company at the later stages versus that EM that was kind of seed focus and could help them at zero to one. But historically, I've seen that happen through a function of a financing. A Series D is happening, a Series E, and as part of that, the EM can take off some money off the table by selling. Now, are you saying that there's also the opportunity that absent a financing happen, there's still an opportunity to sell? And under what circumstances can that actually happen in a structured way? that you see over the next, let's say, 24, 25. They, they were rolled into these financings, which made it a lot easier, right? Because as I referenced earlier, it had the supply-demand imbalance, and that actually sometimes, to your point, to help solve it, where they're like, oh, we, we have so much demand from these great crossover investors. If you, Mr. Mr. Microfund, sold into it, it, it would help everybody, and we want these crossover investors to buy our IPI. But now, you're right. Like The interesting thing about the direct secondary market you're trying to sell some of these crown jewels, is there aren't these sort of logical goalposts. You don't the the round that happened, you know, in these great companies was maybe a year or two ago. You know, you're not tying into that. Obviously, that financing, that valuation is not necessarily viewed as relevant. As you look forward in the next six months, year, year and a half, there's no goalpost there. There's no like, well, I can roll it into this, because there's no, in many cases, not an obvious financing happening, no IPO happening. And so you're kind of in this void. You know, they'll go like to your point, like, what do you go? How do you do it? And CEOs and operators, of these companies are like super busy. They're heads down, operating, turning the wheels, getting more efficient, growing, you know, focusing on a lot of like hard things and not getting liquidity for a seed stage manager. So 
you kind of have to go about it on your own to some degree. You know, the four, first port of call, right, is going to be all the existing investors in the cap table. And, you know, are there, are there people in that cap table that are hungry and want to buy more and have dry powder and, you know, are, are willing to buy up ownership in some of their best companies? That could be a weird and you know, difficult conversation to some degree because in many cases, maybe you built the company together, but you're in different points in your maturation of your firm. So those are conversations that are happening within cap tables uh, right now, for sure. And the other piece is then, you know, are there outside direct secondary shops that will buy these that are in situations where the management will be supportive, the other insiders may be supportive, or those shares might not have right of first refusal, other structural things that might become blockers for that new buyer. And I know that's a little technical. There are a good amount of direct secondary market buyers. There's more and more emerging. You know, if you're one of those micro VC funds, you need to go out and seek those those groups. And in, in kind of a one-off basis, share information and, and run your own process as if you are ultimately an investment banker yourself for your own company. Now, there's sensitivity clearly to what you can share or not about that company. So you're going to want to be in some consultation with them. But it does it does produce a lot of more price discovery where, again, to your point, a lot of it was tied to prior financings. Now, those discussions that are being had, if you're a micro investor or a former employer existing, it's really like, okay, what is true intrinsic market value for this business based on the metrics of the company, the cap table, you know, all the important things you look at. And people are able to point more to what is, you know, more standard pricing, which is what the public markets are trading. So you're seeing a lot more normalcy in that. Now, if you're a seller, you have to realize that is now the market versus you had this supply demand dynamic where you could play into where everyone was trying to pile into around and you benefited from that as a seller. So it it is very much changed in that regard. But the good thing is there are more people out there looking to buy. You just need to find buyers that have the relationships or are, are able to gain the, the information or you're able to share the information with and you know can can transact and be a healthy part of the cap table going forward. Yeah, you you and I talked a little bit about just where we think the liquidity market might go. And of course, private equity, I think, is much further along than venture in terms of certain things not being taboo. I, I, you mentioned direct secondaries, people taking money off the table for the entrepreneur or the CEO. Most of that taboo has gone away because it actually made sense for people to take money, keep the uh, the management team motivated for a bigger exit. And you know, as we look at sort of where the, the market is right now, clearly liquidity is something that needs to be solved in some way because I wholeheartedly agree that this, you know, I invest and I have to be in for 17 years really doesn't actually make sense when you're thinking about traditional asset investments. And we've seen certain formats out there or platform, whether it's Carta X, Forge, Equity Zen, NASDAQ private markets, but we still don't see a lot of translucence in terms of how things are done. Like what should be, if I'm a seller, what should I be selling at? If I'm a buyer, what should I be paying? How much information do I get? There's things like rofers, which can block certain things from happening. What do you think is necessary for this for these secondary markets to become more efficient and to be a staple, perhaps, of private investing, particularly in venture capital? I totally agree with your statement there around just sort of the the maturation of 
venture relative to private equity. And in many ways, secondaries actually make more sense in venture than private equity because, you know, average time IPO is a decade, fund lives for 12 years, your investment periods are three to four years. None of that math makes any sense. Private equity firms just got way ahead of the curve for a, a number of reasons due to the, you know, the size and scale of the asset class. In many cases, you know, more sophistication rounds for these liquidity options. You know, I think you and I are on the same page that venture needs to catch up there. There needs to be multitude of on-ramps and off-ramps during what, you know, is this longer and sort of more, more valuable journey. And there, there shouldn't be any sort of this negative bias if you're an LP that wants some partial liquidity as you go here, especially because a lot, a lot of this partial liquidity, I believe, will, will, will is not quitting on the asset class. It's just building better self-funding. And, and for GPs, if they have these LPs are able to take ships off the table, and that's their prerogative. In certain cases, LPs might be happy to hold to the very bitter end. That's cool too. You're going to help happier LPs. And the happier LPs you have, if you're a GP, that's great. Those are people who are going to continue to support you, give you more money back. Again, if you think about your LPs as your end customer in your GP, trying to figure out ways to do this more systematically is sort of the right way to do it. And LPs should not feel the negative stigma that they once did about selling because GPs are kind of coming to this realization and you're doing quite well in the asset class, many cases as LPs. So why not sort of figure out ways to be strategic about how you allocate your capital and and, and utilize that to you know provide distributions. It is still an emerging category, as you sort of pointed out here. There is still opaqueness to it. Having relationships as a buyer to the end venture firms is important. Having information on the companies or the funds is very important. As a seller, you are a little bit beholden to those fund managers or to those companies or whatnot to have those relationships want to support you in the sale want to allow you to share information or share information on your behalf. In private equity, there's less of that friction. Private equity managers don't have as much restrictions. They're more open to information. That's why you've seen it being a much bigger market, a much more efficient market. Pricing is much higher. Information is just well, well known, and it's created this mega secondary market in private equity. So I think venture will catch up. It, it absolutely will catch up and look and feel more like private equity in the future. But but again, with those like big asterisks, Samir, of like relationships and information do matter a lot in this asset class, whether again, you're a buyer or a seller. And, and the more that relationship and information can be bridged where people can like see eye to eye, it brings transactions together and creates win-wins. But there are disconnects out there in this asset class and then will remain to some degree because venture is this unique asset class, whereas we know a, a smaller subset of firms drive the bulk of the returns. Those venture firms, in many cases, can be more modest in fund sizes. You know, they like to think about if there are people that are trading places in their LP cap table, or if you're an entrepreneur in your actual cap table, they want that person to be a great long-term partner. That does create a different kind of dynamic of when, you know, that piece in let's call it LP ownership or company ownership trades hands in venture, they care a lot more about that ongoing partnership and who it, who is going to be that long-term partner to support that company or to support that venture firm in the future versus in private equity, there's, especially more broadly, 
there's less of a care about that and it can become more transactional. Those are some of the nuances, but I think you and I do have that same thesis of venture heading in that direction because of all these these sort of mismatch and duration and, and, and need for partial liquidity come during these these long and valuable journeys. It's very clear that the uh, financial maturation of venture is starting to happen. We have seen things like people selling a piece of their GP that we hadn't seen before. We've seen more of these secondary trans- transactions, GP continuation funds, which we haven't even touched on. You know, I've said this before internally, I think we're venture is making this uneasy transition into essentially mass finance or mass similar to private equity. I think you alluded to the number before, but pre-GFC, you know, 20 to 30 billion raised by VC funds was kind of the norm. 2020 and 21, we had 5X that. It was about 150 billion a year. So it's going to be really interesting to see how all parts of venture, primary, certainly secondary, there are going to be structural things that happen. Like with anything, you need forcing functions like LPs needing liquidity, people asking for it, GPs understanding that part of actually providing liquidity actually helps them for their next cycle and their next cycle. It is actually this net positive versus something that should be viewed as a negative signaling risk. But this has been a really fascinating conversation. I feel like secondaries are something that everyone talks about, but often misunderstood in terms of the mechanics. So John, Thank you so much for coming on. This has been a a lot of fun and really appreciate all the uh, insight and and the work you've done. Thanks for having me on and uh, looking forward to continuing the conversation in the future. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of the Allocate Podcast. We really hope you enjoyed our conversation with John. Please subscribe to the Allocate Podcast on iTunes or Spotify to get the latest episodes straight to your inbox. And don't forget to leave a rating as it really helps us out.